Dan Webb, United States Attorney, the Northern District of Illinois, by Mr. Richard L. Miller, Jr., Assistant United States Attorney. Uh, Mr. Miller understands successfully prosecuted uh, the case involving the kidnapping of Miss Betty Darlene Callahan. Mr. Vita, can you tell me briefly what this document contains and the reason it was prepared? Yes, Senator. And if you can limit that to about three minutes, if you can brief as much as you can. Yes, sir, I will. Senator, I would like to submit for the record. We can put your full statement on the record, but if you'll brief it now. Yes, sir. Senator, I would like to submit for the record a memorandum provided by the United States Attorney's Office in Chicago, Illinois, to the United States District Court. This memorandum provides evidence arguing for aggravation of sentence for members of the Outlaws Motorcycle Gang convicted as the result of the kidnapping of Betty Darlene Callahan. This memorandum sets out a series of criminal acts, including narcotics dealings and murders, as well as evidence of connections to traditional organized crime and the gathering of weapons by the outlaws. It further addresses attempted intimidation of the gang's government witnesses, including procurement of hit contracts. The purpose of this memorandum is to advise the court of the serious criminal nature of the defendants who had been convicted on charges brought by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and U.S. Attorney's Office in the Northern Di Judicial District of Illinois. Some of the evidence concerning the outlaws contained in this document is that they are an international, an international organization with chapters in the United States and Canada. Their income in Chicago and North Carolina is derived primarily from narcotics and prostitution. In Chicago, they are allied with traditional organized crime in prostitution-run nightclubs and bars. One item, Senator, that I would like to highlight is an example of witness intimidation as documented, including an attempt to procure a hit contract on Ms. Callahan at the very time she was part of the witness protection program. Undercover ATF agents made contact with the outlaws. The agents pretended to be hitmen in order to thwart an attack and gain evidence against the gang. The government attorney documents how the outlaws were able to pierce in the security of the telephone company billing system and determine that the telephone number given to, the, to them by the agents posing as the hitmen was really an undercover telephone billed to the, to the United States government in Cleveland, Ohio. Senator, uh, I have some uh, remarks on the background of the witness if you wish me to read those into the record. Uh, go ahead and give us that as quick as you can. Ms. Callahan is a 25-year-old female who was formerly addicted to narcotics and worked as a prostitute in North Carolina. In December of 1981, she was kidnapped at gunpoint by members of the Outlaws Motorcycle Gang. She was told that her boyfriend owed the Outlaws $1,500 for drugs. She was then given the opportunity to take her chances and receive the same consideration as her boyfriend, who was later murdered, or work as a prostitute for members of the Outlaws. Fearing for her life, she went with the outlaws from North Carolina to Chicago. She was held captive for 44 days, during which time she was forced to engage in a variety of sexual acts with various members of the outlaws motorcycle gang and one of their old ladies. During this time, she, was also, she also observed narcotics and various conventional and automatic firearms in the outlaws' possessions. She was left alone at a motel and telephoned her mother and authorities who rescued her. Ms. Callahan testified for the state and for ATF and is currently in the witness security program. Uh, just raise your hand, uh, ask the witness to raise your hand. 
testimony you give in this hearing should be the truth, the whole truth, and that's what truth we have to God. I do. Miss Callahan, uh, was the reputation of the Outlaws Motorcycle Gang known to you at the time you were kidnapped? And what was the extent of that knowledge? I was aware of what the Outlaws were, that they were a motorcycle gang. Speak just a little louder, please. Speak in your machine so we can all hear you well. I was aware of the Outlaw Motorcycle Gang. I knew that they were a national organization that they had chapters all over the United States and that they were involved in illegal activities such as drugs, theft, counterfeiting, numerous activities such as that. Where were you living when you were kidnapped? In North Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina. Asheville, North Carolina? Yes. Did the Outlaws gang uh, operate in that city? I'm not quite positive if there was a chapter. There were outlaws living there. But I don't think they had a chapter there. Now, where were you kidnapped? In Asheville, North in Carolina. In Asheville. Uh, would you care to tell us now just what happened to you from the time you kidnapped on? Briefly. You, just tell your own story in your own words of what happened to you from the time you were kidnapped. And the reason for the kidnapping. Okay, I. I was living with Tommy Forrester, and he had been purchasing drugs and borrowing money from Alan Ray Hathaway, who was a member of the Outlaws Motorcycle Gang. He also bought quantities of drugs for Gary Miller, who was also convicted. Um, Tommy owed both of them a sum of money that he had told me was $1,500. He had Alan Ray Hathaway's motorcycle. Uh, the reason he told me he had the motorcycle was over a debt. Put your mouth closer to the machine. Okay. And I had went next door to a Shoney's to get something to eat. When I returned to the motel where Tommy and I were living, there were three guys at the door. I knew all three. One was Gary Miller, one was Alan Ray Hathaway, and one was Jay Fagel. I sensed something was wrong and it was too late for me to run, so they busted in the door, went in the room. Uh, they pistol whipped my boyfriend, uh, searched both of us. They had Mr. Fagel, who was the third man, but he was there unwillingly. They had his eight-year-old son in the truck. They had what? They had his eight-year-old son outside in a truck. Ms. Kelly, if you would pull the mic just as close as possible, you got kind of a soft voice, so if you would, please. Here's eight-year-old son, did you say? Yes. All right, go ahead now. They, Speak close then to the mic like I'm doing. They had told Mr. Fagel that if he tried to call the police or do anything, that they would kill his eight-year-old son. So Mr. Fagel was going along with him. Um, then later, we got in the truck, we went to a drive-in where Mr. Fagel and his son got out and they departed. 
Tommy and I were then transferred into Cordoba. From there, we went into Tennessee, cut back into North Carolina. We ended up at Paul Bear's house, which is in Boone, North Carolina, somewhere in that area. At that point, they said that we were going to, both of us, talk to some people about seeing if Tommy and I both could live, if we could work out an arrangement to where we could live. They blindfolded both of us and gagged us, put us in a truck, took us up a dirt road. At that point, they said Tommy was going in to talk to some people and see if he could work out an arrangement to where he could live. Then I would go next. So Tommy got out of the truck with Alan Ray Hathaway and Paul Wilson Bear, and I stayed in the truck with Gary Miller. Tommy's your boyfriend. Tommy's my boyfriend. That was the last time that I saw Tommy. I, while they were gone, Gary Miller asked me if I would rather stay and take my chances with Tommy. He explained to me, he said, if you stay, it's 50-50. If Tommy lives, you live. If he dies, you die. Or you can go to Chicago on your own. So I said, I'll go to Chicago. Earlier, Tommy had said to me, he had said, no matter what happens, you do what you have to to stay alive because I'm a dead man. They're going to kill me anyway. So What's the last thing your boyfriend told you? That he was a dead man, that they were going to kill him anyway. It didn't, there wasn't nothing he could do. So when they said, make a choice, I said, I'll go to Chicago. And at that point, we left and went to Chicago. Did they say why they were taking you to Chicago? I was to work as a prostitute to pay off the money that Tommy owed them. To pay off the money your boyfriend owed them? Yes. All right, go ahead. When we arrived... And they took it to Chicago? Yes. All right, go ahead from that. We arrived in Chicago late on a Sunday night. Um, we checked into a motel where a day or two later I met a guy by the name of Marty. At the time I didn't know his name. His name now is Martin Curran. And I met him. I was told to engage in sex with him, which I did. At this time he showed me he had a 357 revolver. Uh, at all times they all had guns. Uh, later on, he left. Then a couple days later, I met Westside, who is Thomas Stimmick. I was, at that point, we were in a different motel. Alan Ray Hathaway instructed me to come over, strip off, and turn around so that Mr. Stimmick could view me, which I did, as I was told. When I, they told me to return, go to back to the bathroom, I did. Uh, they talked. I didn't hear what they were talking about. The next day, Mr. Stimmick returned to pick me up. When I got in the car with him, there was another guy by the name of Snoopy. I got in the car with him. They then dropped me and Snoopy off at a motel. I stayed there that night with Snoopy. Then we were picked up the next day by Westside. We went to his house in Hinsdale, which was a very nice uh, residential house. Um, there I met 
his old lady, Tony Summers. Then later on, Mr. Curran returned. He picked me up, took me to a place over in Indiana, which they referred to as the Flats. There at that place, we stayed for five days. It was like, um, it was a probationary house. These were guys that wore t-shirts that said probate outlaws. They were becoming members of the outlaws, but they had to go through a probationary period. And Marty was the overseer. He had to see that they did everything right before they were granted their colors. So that's where I went. I stayed there for five days. While I was there, they had what appeared to me to be machine guns, AR-15 model type guns. They went out and target practiced. Um, they target practiced inside the house. They drank. They had cocaine. They had Canadian blues, uh, various narcotics, marijuana. After that, I returned to the Hinsdale house, to Mr. Stimmick's house in Hinsdale. I stayed there until Christmas night when I went to Mr. Stimmick's mother's house where we were having Christmas dinner. They all had their guns with them and their colors on that night. We had dinner there. She showed us a Christmas card that her son had sent that had an insignia of the outlaws on the front of the Christmas card and had a saying inside. I don't really recall. It was some kind of vulgar statement. And from there, we went over to another woman by the name of Ma Burrito, who was the mother of John Klein's, uh, referred to as Burrito. I was told at that point that Burrito had a girlfriend that had witnessed a murder, and they had wanted her dead because she was going to testify against the people that had murdered the girl. So she and Burrito were supposed to be going to a party, and she had declined at the last minute, and Burrito was driving the truck, which blew up, and he was dead. Um, from there, I then was left with Mr. Stimmick, where we went to an X-rated motel where various things happened. Then later we returned. You're referring to sexual activities here now, as opposed to illegal activities at the motel. Sexual and. I just carry on. I've got to go and boy, I'll be back. The staff and we'll carry on. Go ahead. Sexual and illegal. So I'm referring here to drugs specifically. Yes, the use of drugs. Um, at the motel. After we left the motel, we went back to the Hensdale house. Then within a couple of days, um, everybody came and said that there was something going down. And Marty and Snoopy had what appeared to be automatic weapons. By did you that, know what they were referring to at that time? Only what Miss Summers told me. What did she tell you? She told me that there had been a threat on Westside's life and uh, Westside had on a bulletproof vest, and the other two were carrying automatics, or what I thought were automatics. Then they all had their pistols. 
they said that we were going to have to get out because something was coming down. At that point, I left, went with Miss Summers to another apartment. Then later on, Marty came, picked me up at that apartment. We went back to the Hensdale house. Um, at the Hensdale house, a couple of days later, another guy came over and wired Westside's car with an alarm system. At that point, Marty said that we were going over to Westside's other house, which he had another house, in Indian Head Park, and we were going to be staying there and watching the house for a few days. We went to that house, and on the day that we went to that house, he told me, he and Westside said that I was to make a call to North Carolina to the police, and I was to tell him that I hadn't been kidnapped, that nobody had bothered me, that I was there on my own free will. I wasn't to tell him where I was at. I was supposed to try and find out who they were holding for kidnapping me. Although they knew it was Gary Miller, I was supposed to try and get the cops to tell me, but I wasn't to mention Gary's name. So I went and I made the call. The first call I didn't get through. It was the next day before I got through, which was, I believe, the 7th. I got Did you through. have free access to the telephone at that time, or was, was someone no, watching No, I was told to never use the phone, never answer it, never touch it. I made the call. Mr. Kern stood beside me, listened in. I'd done as I was told on the phone. I, all the time, I wanted to try and say, you know, I have been kidnapped, help me. But, you know, what could I do when there's a guy standing beside me, six foot four, with a 357? So the only chance I had was the officer asked me if I had ever been referred to by any other name as Darlene, and I said no. And at the time, I knew he was looking for the name Rose. I had, on occasions, worked as a CI and so what would you explain that with me? confidential informant, and I had used the name of Rose. Well, that was the only thing I felt I could grasp upon was to say, no, I had no other name. Well, then the call was made. I was supposed to call back. I went to call back. I got cut off when I called back, and Marty made a remark that he was tired of putting money in and trying to call the police down there. He later told me that they were only holding Gary Miller for questioning and that he had been released and for me not to worry about it. We went back to the Indian Head Park house, stayed there until the end of January, I think the 22nd, something like that. When he took me to a motel, he left me, told me he'd be back in a couple of hours. Up to this point, I hadn't been left alone, except one occasion when I first arrived in Chicago. And he said he'd be back in a couple hours, so I sat there. and. He never returned. Well, the next morning, about 10 o'clock, I get a phone call, and he says, oh, are you still there? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I'll be by in a few minutes. So he came by, and he acted sort of mad that I was still there. Then he, he took me and got me something to eat, dropped me back off at the motel. Again, he said he'd be back in a couple hours. He didn't return until the next morning when he picked me up, which was the 25th on Monday. We then circled around. I didn't know exactly where we were, but from the direction we were taking, I knew we were going in circles.
we ended up at a bar and he he got a, about forty dollars in quarters and he was putting them in the phone booth well he kept placing long distance calls you know using the change then Westside and Snoopy came in well both of them they didn't even pay me any attention at all it was just like I was not there and they they talked with Marty and it seemed like they were in conversation about something important and they were off to where I couldn't hear. Then Marty come back and got me, took me to another motel and said he had rented the room for a week, dropped me off. That time he gave me some money. I believe now it was $20 he gave me.